Please stand for the reading of God's word. A little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do, we do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And when a woman, when a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Thank you, Paulina. And please keep your Bibles open to John 16 as we come before the Lord in prayer together this morning. Lord, as we hear these words of your Son, the promise that we receive in John 16, we pray that you would do work in us, that by your spirit we would have hope and that we would have abundant joy. Draw us near to you this morning in hearing your word. Give us hope and give us joy that comes only from your son. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon and told you that Christianity is a faith that looks through the fog of pain and persecution to the glory of restoration. It is not a faith that promises freedom from pain and persecution, but one that looks beyond it. We see that here in this section of John's gospel that we have been studying over the last several weeks, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for what lies ahead for them. It may not be the message that we want to hear, of course, we would prefer Jesus' promise to spare us these things. We would rather that he said, because I love you, I'll see, it, I'll see to it that you never face tragedy. We would rather that he promised us that if we follow him, that he assures success and prosperity and popularity and acclaim, but that is not his promise. Instead, he says, essentially, this will be the hardest thing that you've ever done, and it will cost you more than you ever thought you had to give. It is a promise that might drive people to ask, why would anyone follow Jesus? Why would anyone actually want the life that he offers? For the disciples, 
who will suffer for him. And for people in persecuted parts of the world today, that is a pressing question. As they face violence and tremendous social pressure, pressure, threats to the safety of family, economic consequences, and other trials, this question probably feels more urgent to them than it does to us most of the time. And it's a question that may drive us to soften the words of Jesus in our evangelism. We may be tempted to gloss over some of his teaching, like that his followers will be hated by the world, or that following him requires us, each, each of us, to carry our crosses as we do so. We may rightly emphasize his compassion and his justice and his mercy, but not make much of his promise that life with him will bring much hardship. Because who would want that Savior? Who would want to follow him? Why would anyone want the life that he offers if this is what it will look like? This passage in John 16 that we're looking at today is Jesus' answer. It begins with his comment to the disciples in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. As we've seen frequently in John's gospel, the disciples on hearing this are clueless. They have no idea what he's talking about. Even though he's told them exactly what's about to happen, they don't understand. Mark 8.32 notes that he told them about his arrest and his death and his resurrection. And he specifically notes that Jesus said all of these things plainly. He didn't use cryptic language or metaphors or anything like that. He just says, this is what is going to happen to me. Yet they remain utterly confused. So they, utter, they mutter to themselves here in John 16, asking what in the world he's getting at. What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. If you're like me, reading this, reading this passage, it's easy for us to shake our heads at the disciples, because it seems like they are just so dense sometimes. It certainly seems that way here in John 16. I mean, Jesus had told them plainly, I'm going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders. I'm going to be arrested and executed, and three days later, I will rise from the dead. Yet, when he says this here in John 16, you're not going to see me for a little while, and then you will again, they're like, what could he possibly be talking about? So yes, we shake our heads at them sometimes, but their confusion, it ought to make sense to us. They simply have no category for a crucified Messiah. It's a concept that they don't have space for. They don't, they can't, it doesn't compute. It's like Jesus was telling them that two plus two equals seven or something. They know that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Messiah is the Savior. So the Savior, uh, so Jesus is the, the one who was promised by God to save his people. So therefore, Jesus cannot die because then how would he be the Savior? It's like you can see their gears turning in their heads as they whisper these questions in verses 17 and 18, and smoke is starting to come out of their ears from trying to figure it out. God's Messiah, his promised deliverer and his son cannot get crucified. It just doesn't compute. They don't have a category for it. So later this very night, when Jesus is hauled away in chains, they will be distraught. And the next morning when they see him shamed and humiliated and abused and crucified, they will absolutely crumble. And they will be asking, God, why would you let this happen? 
Everything that they thought they knew will turn to dust, and the plan of God that they thought they understood will seem to have utterly failed. It is the way that we feel when we do not understand the things that God is doing. When we plead with Him for an outcome that He does not provide, or when we beg Him to reveal His mercy in a way that we want to see it, and it does not come. Moments like these when we are driven to despair, as the disciples shortly will be, when we ask along with them, why, God, why would you let this happen? On days like that, or months or years like that, we have this word from John 16 to rest on. He takes a few moments here to give his friends some reassurance that he wants them to carry with them through the despair that they will feel in the coming days and the struggles that they will face in the coming years. And as we will see, it is a deep and abiding encouragement for us as well. It begins in verse 19 with his awareness of their confusion. They are whispering to themselves about what Jesus means, wondering what he is saying when he uses the phrase, a little while and you will not see me. They have no idea that in just a little while, a few hours actually, Jesus will be drawing shallow, ragged breaths from the cross. It will not be long at all before he is laid in a borrowed tomb, sealed with a massive stone and guarded by Roman soldiers. So they don't know what Jesus means when he says, a little while and you will not see me. And as improbable as it is to them that Jesus will shortly be dead and buried, it is even more unbelievable that Jesus could then mean a little while and you will see me again, referring to his resurrection. They have absolutely no category for the fact that Jesus will not only die, but will then conquer death itself. So Jesus' words are mystifying to them, and Jesus knows it. He doesn't say, man, you guys are really slow. Don't you know that I've explained this to you several times already? Instead, John notes that he knew what they wanted to ask him. And so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. He knows their hearts. He knows their anxiety. And because he does, because he does, he speaks to what he knows they are anxious about. He speaks to their fears before they even ask because of his compassion for them. He knows what they want and what they need, and he knows that they are having fearful, whispered conversations about what is happening. And John says that it is because he knows these things that he speaks. It is a mark of his love, and it is one I think that we understand because we, we emulate it. We act this way. If my wife Jessica comes downstairs to the living room and she is wringing her hands and, and pacing back and forth across the room, two things are going to happen. Well, the first is that I will notice that something is wrong because I know her well enough to see it. I'll see in her body language and the way that she's acting. Well, something, something's off. Something is wrong here. And secondly, because I love her, I will ask, what is wrong? What's wrong? What is, what's, what's troubling you? I won't just sit there and say to myself, well, I can tell that she's distraught about something. It's not my problem, though. Woo, dodged a bullet there. At least it's her problem, not mine. It is love that drives Jesus to speak to his disciples because he knows, he knows their hearts and he already knows what is wrong and what's troubling them. 
He doesn't wait for them to come with their questions. Instead, he speaks first, driven by compassion and love for his friends. The heart of Christ for his friends is evident in this passage by the way that he speaks to them, with patience and with grace, an awareness that they have no idea what is happening. He knows that. He remembers the words of Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk is a a small Old Testament book that begins with a prophet whom the book is named for, crying out in confusion of his own. He sees injustice everywhere, and he sees God's people overrun, and he does not see God's deliverance anywhere. He doesn't see God's help for his people anywhere. And he asks, essentially, God, how can this be? How can you allow this? How could you let this happen to people that you say you love? And God replies in Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. He's doing something that Habakkuk simply does not comprehend and couldn't, even if God told him exactly what he's doing. Even if he sat him down and told him directly and stated plainly, just as Jesus did with his disciples, that he will send his son to die for his people, Habakkuk would not, could not believe it, because like the disciples, Habakkuk just does not have a category for a crucified Messiah. Jesus remembers the words of Habakkuk 1.5, and he knows that the plans of God to rescue his people are not plans that the disciples are able to understand yet, not until, by his Spirit, they are able to look backward and see how he was at work for their salvation even though he has told them already what is about to happen. So he is patient with them, and his heart is for them, even though they are slow to believe and slow to rejoice in his plan of their salvation. Secondly, he explains that he will turn sorrow into joy. That is really what's at the heart of this passage. As we've already seen, the disciples will despair when Jesus is arrested and crucified. They will flee in fear for their safety. And Jesus tells them in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, which is a preamble that he likes to use when he's about to say something that will be surprising. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. One of the reasons we know that he's preparing them specifically for his own death is that the word weep that's used here in this verse, it occurs eight other times in John's gospel and only in situations of mourning. It is a sort of sadness that is associated specifically with death. He knows that it will break their hearts and he does not sugarcoat it. He doesn't say to them, it's going to be okay or I'm sure it's not going to be that bad tells them the truth. And on top of that, on top of telling them that they will have broken hearts, he warns them that they will get no sympathy from the world around them. Instead, they will hear gloating over the death of Jesus. People will be mocking him, saying things like, he saved others. Can't he even save himself? And the disciples should expect to hear the same and much worse. It will truly be a moment when the disciples find themselves crying out to God, why? Why could you or would you let this happen? 
And in mercy, Jesus answers a question again, a question that they have not even asked yet, but one he knows that they will. And he says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is one of the sweetest promises in all of Scripture, and it is worthy of a lifetime of consideration and wonder. The word sorrow here is a powerful one. It conveys an inward pain so great that it physically hurts, an emotional bitterness and pain that is so deep that it physically hurts. In fact, it's a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament when discussing physical pain that is accompanied by heartache. It's the difference between receiving an injury, which is painful, and receiving an injury because of the betrayal of a friend, which is sorrowful. The way it is often used in the New Testament, including here in John 16. Sorrow is physical pain intensified by emotional pain. And Jesus says that this intense grief, this sorrow, will somehow turn into joy. It is his promise to his disciples. He does not promise that they will never endure sorrow. In fact, as we've already seen in this section of John's gospel, he actually promises them that they will certainly face terrible affliction and pain. Instead, he makes a different promise, that their sorrow will be transformed into joy. I think Jesus anticipated that they would be scratching their heads over this. It's a logic-breaking sort of thing to say. Sorrow is the antithesis of joy. They are as incompatible as oil and water. Were it, is, were it anyone else making this promise, we would say that it's impossible and a ridiculous notion that sorrow could become joy. He knows that they'll be perplexed, and so he gives them an illustration to help drive the point home in verse 21. When a woman is giving birth, he says, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. It's funny to me, Um, that Jesus uses this illustration in a group of only guys. Like, they'll never know exactly what that's like, Jesus. But despite that, his illustration gets the point across in a way that I think is really helpful. When Jessica, who I've already mentioned, my wife, was pregnant with our son James, we had to go to a class at the hospital. I did not know before all this that you have to take, you go to school to learn about what it's like to have a baby. So we went to this class at the hospital about the labor and delivery process and what to expect. And along the way, we were in class one night, and we were watching a video that explains what a C-section is. And Jessica leans over to me and says, I don't think I can do this. And I said, what, have a C-section? And she said, no, like give birth in general. (laughs) She was excited to be pregnant and excited to be a mom, but was really nervous about the part in between. And when the day came, I remember her looking right at me and saying in complete sincerity, I can't do this. (laughs) Like, this is not about to happen. She did give me permission to share all of that with you. (laughs) She was afraid. And of course, she did get through it. And now she looks back on that day completely differently than she did in the moment. Because in the moment, it was only fear and pain and uncertainty. Now, that moment is, is one that she is able to look back on as one of great, great joy. So even though the disciples are all dudes, I think that they can grasp the point that Jesus is making here in the same way that I can. 
though I assume it probably lands a little bit more significantly with those who have actually been through it. The point he is making is clear. Jesus is able to take sorrow and transform it into joy. He doesn't say, I'm going to replace your sorrow with joy, or I'm going to follow up your sorrow with joy, but I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. The very thing that was their sorrow, the thing that broke their hearts and caused them so much fear and pain and uncertainty, he won't take it away or replace it with something else. He says that it will be the thing that gives them joy. This is what the disciples will experience after they see Jesus crucified. They will be afraid and they will weep bitterly. They will ask, as Habakkuk did, Why, Lord, do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. Why would you let this happen, will be the question that they ask God. But that weeping will not be their last word. Instead, as Jesus explains, so also you have sorrow now but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. When three days from now, they see Jesus, Jesus victorious over death, they will look back on their deepest sadness in a very different way. The root of their sorrow and the darkest day that the world has ever known will somehow be transformed into the root and foundation of their joy. They will realize that it was the crucified Messiah that they had no category for, that they, had, they could not comprehend, they could not see it as a good thing at all, who will be their salvation. That in grace, he took their place and received the wrath of God that was appointed to them for their sin so that they could be made free. And that the thing they so deeply grieved was transformed into the thing that would bring them the deepest and most abiding joy. Your hearts will rejoice, Jesus says, which is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 66, the very end of that long book. In that chapter, God uses the same illustration about giving birth and says that he will cause the hearts of his people to rejoice after their affliction. It promises that though God's people will endure much strife and suffering and pain, he will, in the end, cause them to have great joy. And we know now, because of what Jesus says here in John 16, how it is that he will keep that promise. He will cause them to rejoice, not by sparing them the pain, but by redeeming it and transforming it into joy. In time, they will look back on the saddest day in history when they saw Christ on the cross, and they will see it differently than they did before. It will be transformed and redeemed by Christ himself the blood that they wept over, the lifeless body that they laid in a tomb while they felt anguish in their bones will cause them to rejoice like nothing else. The cross will not be a symbol of death anymore, but one of life. The shame and humiliation of the cross will not lead to mockery anymore, but to praise. And the broken body and spilled blood of Christ are not a reason to weep with sadness anymore, but to weep with joy. This is the power of Christ and his promise to make sorrow into joy. 
And in the remaining verses of our passage, Jesus reveals the way that his disciples will themselves be transformed as a result of this promise. He promises that a day is coming when they will not fear anymore, because a day is coming when he will put an end to sorrow itself. He makes this point in the passage's last two verses, 23 and 24. And in those verses, he's talking about asking, asking from him and asking from the Father. He uses two different words for ask in these verses, which have slightly different meanings. In verse 23, he says, In that day, the day that your sorrow is transformed into joy, you will ask nothing of me. The Greek word for ask in this verse is one that is used when requesting information. Like if I ask you to explain something. So it is the word that the disciples use when they ask Jesus to explain a parable that he had just used in Mark chapter 4. A day is coming, Jesus says, when you will ask nothing of me. When they won't even have the impulse to ask Jesus, why or how could you let this happen? Because they will have seen his resurrection. And they will never again wonder whether he is able to bring good things out of evil or whether or not that is his desire. They will never again doubt the providence of God, unsure of whether or not he is able because they have seen that he has already made the greatest evil serve his redemptive purposes. So now every injustice that they face will not be caused to question God's goodness or his sovereignty by asking him why, but an opportunity to rest in what he's already proven about himself, that he turns sorrow into joy. So when they face suffering, they will not ask why. They will not come to Jesus demanding an explanation. And he tells them that all their prayers will be shaped by what they've seen God do. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Here, Jesus uses a different word for ask. It's one that's used when asking for things, like asking that God would heal an illness or protect someone or provide for a need. Two words are similar, but distinct. And by using both, I think Jesus is making an important point. If someone, any of the disciples or anyone else, comes to recognize that God is able to make good come out of evil circumstances, even such terrible evil as the execution of his son. When they are faced with trouble in their own life, their prayer will be for him to do more of that, for him to redeem and to bring good and beautiful things out of the ashes of terrible circumstances. And God delights to answer that prayer because it is a plea for him to move in accordance with his redeeming nature. Jesus says this is for your joy, for you to have full joy, because he knows that if the disciples long for God's redemption, they will never be left wanting. Ask for what my, my father desires to give, he says, or suggests, and you will never be disappointed. Instead, you will have overflowing joy. And though I'm using an ESV translation, that's what we preach from here at Westgate, I appreciate the way the New American Standard Bible uh, preserves some of the nuance in this passage. So let me read it to you. And on that day, Jesus says, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. 
Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Jesus wants his disciples to know that a time is coming, not only in the hours ahead, but throughout the years ahead, when they will not understand what God is doing or why he is doing it. But in that moment, they won't ask why. Their prayer will not be an accusation that God has made a mistake. Instead, they will have every confidence and joy in their trust that God is at work for their good and his glory, even if they cannot see or understand how. The encouragement of this passage is meant to carry the disciples through the next few days and also for the rest of their lives. First and foremost, Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, which are imminent. And so Jesus wants them to have these words to stand on to get them through the next few days. But the principle that he's giving them, the theological truth that he's revealing in this passage, is one that goes beyond the specific moment that they are in. And is for not only the the disciples, but all who follow Christ. I think that's true. Because in verse 19, when Jesus tells the disciples that he knows what they're wondering, he knows what question they have, he does not give them a direct answer to their question. They want to know what he means by a little while. And though he knows that exactly that is what they're wondering, he does not explain what he means by that. Even though the context makes clear that he's preparing them for his death and resurrection, he does not explain that that is what he means by a little while. Instead, he uses this moment to teach them something about who God is in his nature, not just in this situation, but in all situations. He tells them that though they will have sorrow, God will turn it into such enduring joy that no one will be able to take it away. He is, this is who he is, the God who can do this. and That is what he wants them to understand. The encouragement of this passage is a principle for all of us who look to Christ in hope for salvation. And the promise that he makes is for all who cling to him by faith. Just as he knew the fears and the anxieties of the disciples, he knows yours as well. He knows before we ever utter the words, before we stumble in confusion over the things that will make us ask, why would you let this happen? He knows what we fear. He knows what causes us pain and causes us anxiety. He is not capricious or careless, but speaks to us words of comfort and concern before we can even form the question. He has spoken already, declaring to us in his word that when we do not know what to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He knows what grieves us. And in mercy, he hears our deepest longings and pleas, even those that are too difficult to speak aloud. And he has declared to us that even the most difficult moments in our lives and the seasons of deepest sorrow that we face, he will make into joy. He does not promise that we will never face them, but that he will redeem them. our joy. That one day we will look back on them and see that he was at work in ways we simply could not comprehend at the time, and that when we do, we will rejoice in them. Perhaps this right now is a season of great heartache for you. Perhaps you are grieving today, and you hear these words and feel that maybe I am underestimating your pain or trivializing your pain. 
I feel that. There is someone here in this room who is thinking, if you knew my pain or the situation that I'm facing, you would know that there is no way that God could ever make it into something that I would rejoice in. We feel that way because we, like the disciples, cannot see. We simply, it doesn't compute. We don't have categories for how God could possibly make it true. They had no category for a crucified Savior. They simply couldn't understand how the blood of God's Son could be reason to celebrate. For them, the only thing that they could see was the greatest injustice and the greatest tragedy that had ever occurred in history. All they saw when they looked up at Jesus on the cross was sadness. How could God use that to bring about their joy? How could that be their joy? And like he was toward them, he is patient with us when we cannot see how he could possibly redeem our sorrow. Though he has told us in plain language, like he told them, we are slow to understand and slow to praise him for his redeeming love, just like the disciples were. And he has told us that he makes all things work together for the good of those who love him. The cross proves that he is able. And John 16 shows us that he is patient toward us. And that is good news. Because if you haven't faced it yet, there will come a day in your life when your trust in him is put to the test. And even if and when that day comes, we will need to cling to the hope that no matter how deep our sorrow, God's ability to redeem it is greater. No matter how big or consuming your heartache is, know that God's capacity to make good out of it, to bring joy out of it, is bigger. Set your hope on this. Your God and your Savior is able to do this. He is able to take grieving and sorrow and pain and make it rejoicing. This passage reminds me of my favorite moment from the book, uh, the, the last book in the Lord of the Rings series. When Sam, one of the hobbits, is reunited with his friend Gandalf, whom he thought was long dead, he cries, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What is happening in the world? Both of these characters have been through tremendous hardship and suffering, but in the end, they are able to see the evil that had corrupted the world beginning to unravel. And Sam asks, is everything sad going to come untrue? It's a question that's filled to the very brim with hope and expectation about what lies ahead. And that is part of the promise that we read from Jesus to his people. A day will come when there will be no more suffering and no more tears. That is the picture that is described for us of the end of history in Revelation 4, that in God's presence, God's people will have every tear wiped from their eyes. But what Jesus promises here in John 16 is that on that day, we will look back through the days that we lived, through our lives, and the days that we cried the hardest and suffered the most, and we will see his gracious hand at work to carry us to redemption. We will look at those days, the worst days, and we will praise him for them all. And our praise will be greater, and our joy will be deeper than if we had never faced them in the first place. So the closer we are drawn to him, we will not ask, why would you allow this? How could you let this happen? 
as he promised the disciples, we will not question him about anything. But we will be so consumed with joy in him that our only request for him will for him to do more of what he wills, for him to be more of who he is, for him to act according to his redeeming nature. Because we will have seen and treasured the security that we have in his capacity to turn our sorrow into joy. There is no direct instruction from this text. Nothing Jesus tells his disciples specifically to do. So there is no easy application for us to say, this is the action item, put this on your to-do list. There's nothing that we are sent to do. Instead, there is a call to set your hope on God's redeeming love and to let that be a firm foundation under your feet because he has proven already that he is able. This passage is a lifeline that we cling to. In love and mercy, God not only carries us through suffering, as we saw two weeks ago, but even redeems our suffering, making us to weep tears of joy rather than tears of sorrow, in the same way that the tears shed at the death of Christ become tears of joy at being forgiven and welcomed into the household of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage this morning from John 16 and these words from Christ. As we consider them in the days ahead, cause them to be established deeply in our hearts. Cause us to rest in your proven love for us and your proven ability to make light come out of darkness and good come out of suffering. Cause us to rejoice and to praise with joyful hearts, even in the midst of suffering, knowing that one day we will look back on our pain and see your gracious hand at work. You are glorious, Lord, and we praise you today in the name of your Son. Amen.